This time, remain standing with me for the reading of God's Word from Romans 13, 11 through 14. May He add his, his blessing to it this morning. Hear the Word. It says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the, the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Friends, as we move through Romans, this is a transition point. We're going to be looking at the, the last of this general section of how to live out our faith in, uh, in general ways. There's going to be a particular instance that we're going to look at next week, but, but I'll, I'll begin with a, a question I think is a diagnostic question. It's, and the question is, what is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you? It's a fun thought, right? What's the worst possible thing that could happen to you? No doubt you, you think of losses and deaths and, and things that you would miss uh, if something terrible happened to you. And, and the culture that we live in says that the, the most terrible thing uh, would be for you to be unhappy. Uh, but the scripture says is the most terrible thing that could happen to you is that you should be unholy. Right? Uh, there's two different views of what is happening in our world and that's uh, that happiness is the pr principal aim. And secondly, that holiness is the principal aim. And only those who are believers and believing into Christ are focusing on the holiness, or should be. We prayed in the earlier portion of the service in corporate prayer, uh, asking God to enlarge our minds. And, and in enlarging our minds, what we're asking for is that we would know what we know according to the revealed will of God, and then use it, uh, be able to live in light of that. And that's exactly what the Bible does. Uh, as the Bible starts not with man's happiness, but with God's holiness. And Christianity is not a system for you to become more happy. The object of salvation is for God to reconcile sinners in this world to himself and to make them holy. So the culture says that feeling is first, but Scripture says that truth is first. Truth is first before we subjectively feel it. Truth proceeds. And as you see in the, verse, the first verse that we read, it says, besides this, you know. Or besides this, knowing that. Knowing is where we begin. Unless you have a general idea and comprehension of the plan of salvation, which has been assumed, Knowing this, because besides this, you know, 
you're never going to be able to live in this life holy. You have to be living out of basing your life on this truth, working them out, knowing them. And what he says, that you know this, that the hour has come for you to wake up. It's an alarm clock moment. And nobody wants to get out of bed when the alarm goes off. Uh, my very first job out of college, I slept in on a very important, very important trip that I, had to, I was leading. And, and, and somebody in the church came and, and, and knocked on my, my door and said, oh, hey, you know, it's time to go. Uh, I was late. How embarrassing to be found asleep when you're supposed to be at work, right? Mortifying, horrible. He says in Romans, 11, uh, Romans 13, 11, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Time to sleep is over. You're awake. It says, for salvation is nearer now to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So he begins with, where are you? The salvation timeline is out there. It's objectively true. Jesus took on flesh, was born of a virgin, lived, born in Bethlehem, Nazareth, on to Jerusalem, Capernaum, those real places really crucified outside of Jerusalem, really rose from the dead on the third day. The apostles spread this gospel all over the world. And men and women have been believing into Christ since that day. And that's why you're here. There are churches here. And there are people who have spoken the gospel to you in your family and in, the, in this world. And you live in this timeline of the, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming to Christ. And that's what he says, the salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The day of the consummation, when, when as, as Paul's already alluded to in Romans 8, the day in which someday, some way that Christ is going to return, and this groaning creation is going to be renewed. It's longing for, for, its, for its fullness again. It's lost it in the, in the one man, Adam, who subjected it to sin. But the one man, Christ, is renewing it, renewing all things. There's going to be a day in which every tear is going to be wiped away. There will be no more death. There will be no more disease. There will be no injustice. And it will be coming through Christ's second coming. We live in the now of, of all those blessings that we've received in Christ already and the not yet of those that are still to come. And so he says, knowing this, order your lives accordingly. In light of the indicative of what is already true in the timeline and where we are in history, you must understand and do. You must live by faith. That's what living by faith is. Enlarging your mind. Using your mind to consider what is the best thing today. What's the best thing I can be doing today. The, best, the most glorious thing I can be doing with, with the time that God's given me by faith. And the, and the other side of faith is repentance. We'll look at that. But we, we're, we're, as, as Paul's called us to renounce the ways of the world. If you look at 12, 1 through 2. No longer being conformed to this pattern in the world, but therefore by the mercies of God, according to those, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Your mind is to be new in your thinking and your conduct. You're going to think differently and have different conduct. And it says that there's, a, there's a, an hour coming, a day. A day of the Lord is the, is the jargon that God used in the Old Testament through the prophets to speak of this cataclysmic end time where God would, would send forth the shepherd the Son of Man, 
to renew all things and to bring judgment on God's enemies. And so you've got to be dressed for this occasion. You've got to be ready for this occasion, it says there in the, in, the, in the next verses. It says to take off certain things and put on certain things. Uh, I spoke to a friend of mine the other day because to get advice on a trip to Washington, D.C. that we're looking at. We're looking at going to Washington, D.C. And so I, went, and this, I knew this man had been to that place many, many times. So I called him I said, Scott, what do I need to do when I get to, to Washington, D.C.? And he said, the most important thing you have to know is you have to wear comfortable shoes because you're going to be walking a lot. Fair enough. You've got to have comfortable shoes. But if you're going to go on a tour of the Capitol, you've got to have some decorum there. You've got to be, be appropriately dressed. So you've got to go in the White House, the Capitol. So you've got to have, like, your good athletic shoes on. you also got to you know, kind of be, you can't be a slob. You know? So you've got you to have both going on. You've got to have comfortable footwear and some, some decent-looking clothes. So, so that's the situation. You've got to know what you're getting into. You've got to know what you need to wear for the occasion. That's one of the first questions we, send, we tend to ask. And so the question is, we're talking about night is far gone and day is at hand, as it says in verse 12. We're to put off the night clothes and put on the day clothes. Now, this is a, an agricultural time. There was no artificial light here. And so every, all the work had to be done early in the morning as soon as you've got light. And so if you're, a, if you're not waking up in the morning, you're a sluggard. You're worthless. You've got to get up in the morning. You can't have this, this job that happens afternoon. It all happens in the morning. You've got to get going. And so uh, this is a, a, a very poignant illustration. The night is far gone. The day is, is at hand. So he says, therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He's saying there that you have to to cast off certain things and put on other things that are appropriate. He says in 13, walk properly as in the daytime, not in these, these, this catalog of sins there. There's six uh, verbs there or nouns there, six things uh, that you could, you could possibly be involved in. And so he says uh, we're to use uh, these uh, things that we're given for God's glory to be consecrated, as he says, we're going to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him, discerning God's will in Romans 12, 2. He talks about using our gifts well in 3 through 8. He talks about uh, loving people sincerely. He speaks about obeying the government. He speaks about loving our neighbors. In order to do that, we have to understand and know our present time. The time has come. The hour is at hand. Salvation is near. In God's timeline, the next big event is the second coming of Christ. Paul and Jesus wouldn't tell us when it was. It's unknown, but it's imminent. It is next. And the, and the, and the, uh, the teaching is be prepared, be ready. The reason is, is we're to remember what time we're in and live appropriately. We can't fail to be aware of that. There's a, there's a uh, moderately funny movie I used to enjoy as a young child called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It's about two stoner kids in high school who find a magical telephone booth. You're like, what's a telephone booth? Uh, there are some on the campus of OU. They don't work. But at the, back in the day, in this time, you had, to have, you had to go into a telephone booth to make calls. So if you get in this telephone booth, they could magically be transported to different places in time and history. And so they would be uh, engaging with Socrates or Napoleon or any of these figures of history. And, and they don't know their history. 
So they have no awareness of where they are, which leads to hilarity. Okay, so that's the point. That's the, kind of, that's the premise. And it goes on and on and on. They get zapped to a different place, and they don't know what's going on there. And, and they have to figure it out. As you think about that, if you live as if there is no timeline, you make grave errors. Grave errors. Insane errors. There is a timeline that we live in. If you live as if Christ makes no difference to your life now, you're living as Bill and Ted. You know, it's completely idiotic. The problem is we all have these impulses from the old man, the sarks, the flesh. And we live easily obeying them, unknowingly often. But the Christian's job is not to just live impulsively and according to those natures and those desires, but to know, to understand, to think, and to use our minds. And so this is not just a brute worldview of following ethical codes. It's a, it's a, it's a worldview of wisdom, knowing how it is that God's particularly called you to consecrate your life. We're not a bunch of you know, uh, robots here, and we're not a bunch of clones we all have different, different gifts, different callings, different families, different settings, different workplaces, different all kind of things. And we seek to consecrate all of those areas to the glory of God for Christ's honor and to put on Christ in all those places. And what's that, what's that called? That's called living eschatologically, living redemptive historically, living in light of the timeline. The day is near and I am seeking to put on the armor of light, put on Christ and put, on, put off the ways of darkness as, as is appropriate and walk appropriately. The key to knowing and living is putting on Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, rightly positioning yourself in light of his work in the first and second comings. The first, he came and he atoned for sin. In mercy and grace, he endured the full wrath of God for our justification. All the elect, all the chosen were, were, were redeemed in Christ. And in this and then the next coming, he's going to bring us into glory. He, so he, in the first coming of Christ, he destroyed the guilt of our sins. In the second coming, he's going to destroy the presence of our sin. And in the current position right now, what's he doing? He's destroying the power of our sin. He's subduing the power of our sin for his glory. Through his work and in your work. It says in Zechariah 12, 10, that, that I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that they look on me. When they look on me in whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for the only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So what God is doing now is he's pouring out his spirit on his people and we are mourning over the death of Christ, that my sin placed him there, that my sin is, is, a, is, a, is a cosmic treason against God. It is serious, and I hate it. It's sorrowful. It's terrible. I hate the reality of sin, and I'm purposing to eliminate sin as much as I can for my life by God's grace. You know why I'm doing that? Because God has graced me with that. He's put his spirit in me. He's poured his spirit in me that I might be interested in doing that. And you too. So this age we live in now is a time where the power of sin is being subdued. The age where the 
guilt of sin has been eliminated, has already occurred, and the presence of sin will someday, when Christ returns, be eliminated. He's doing it in history for his glory. Now, the kingdom of God came with Jesus through his death, resurrection, ascension. His ascension and his resurrection leads to the ultimate authority over all things. As we've confessed in the Apostles' Creed, not a hair, I mean, in the Halliburton Catechism, not a hair can fall from our, hair, from our head apart from his will. He's governing every little thing, and, and even our repentance. So Jesus has called us to repentance. Repentance. Repentance is a reality. It says, if you will not repent, you will perish. That's Jesus', it's Jesus words. That's John the Baptist's words. That's the apostles' words. If you will not repent, you will perish. Sin, unrepentant of, is going to bring ruin to you, to your church, to your kingdom, to your congregation, to, all, to, to every neighborhood you're in, every household. If your sin is unrepented of, it will destroy and corrode and make toxic. It will ruin you in our church to this day. Repentance. What is it? It's a grace. It's undeserved. It's given by God freely. It enables and disposes us, people like us, sinners, to turn from sin toward God. It is an ability to turn from sin to God. It's given by God. It's a grace of God. And we see ourselves as sinners. We are sorrowful over that. We hate our sin. And we purpose after new obedience to our Savior and God. Now, it has a sure connection with eternal salvation. You can't have salvation and not be a repenter. That's why he says here, know these things and live in light of them. Put on Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put off one set of clothes Put on another set of clothes. So you're going to put on and take off. Now, the purpose of ministry in Timothy's ministry, according to Paul, was this. In 2 Timothy 2, it says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, and God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. You and I are assaulted by enemies within, our flesh, and enemies without, the devil. And we have the, the need to repent, and God must, as it says, grant that to us through the ministry of truth, the knowledge of truth. And the spirit of truth enables us to do that by putting off one set of clothes and putting on another set of clothes. In Ephesians 4.22, it says, Put off your old self, which belongs to the former way, way of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed by the spirit of your minds. And be put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. It's a common way of speaking of repentance. It's taking off one thing and putting on another. Therefore, having put away falsehood, he says, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. But now he says in Colossians 3.8, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. For you're God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, humility, and patience should be what you put on. 
So you're putting off and putting on, putting off, putting on. We're putting on the armor of God that we might stand. Christ uses this word, and, and Paul uses this word, and Peter uses this word, put off, put on. Put on the armor of light. Why armor? It says that in the, in the verses we read there, in verse uh, 11 and 12. It says, so then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Why armor? Why armor? Armor is not just decorative. It's not just different clothes. It's protection. Kind of no doubt, right? It's armor. Uh, it's also uh, for warfare. Uh, now, so this would imply that Christians are engaged in warfare. Why would it be important to know that you're in a war? Of course, because you don't, you, you don't want to be touched by surprise by that. Now, if you're unaware of this, you might be uh, killed. Now, John Owen, who wrote famously on repentance and sanctification, said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You must be engaged in this process. Be doing it by the work of the Spirit or it will be killing you. It will be toxifying everything, destroying everything. Uh, it will be killing you. Now, not ultimately destroying you uh, because, of course, God will protect you, right, if you're in Christ. But it destroys your quality and enjoyment of God. Even if you're in Christ, you are losing something wonderful by not mortifying and killing your sin and repenting of it, turning away from it, taking it off, putting it on. It's so insidious that we don't even think that sometimes that we need to repent. We think, well, that's somebody else. Repentance is this thing that we do when we come to Christ, but it's not something we do every day. Uh, or those people out there need to repent, but not me. But what repentance is, is that every single day I need to be taking on and putting off. You don't just change your clothes once in your life. You've got to put them on every day. The appropriate wear. You need to walk appropriately. You need to put on exactly what's given here. Sometimes God gives me someone that's very difficult for me to get along with. And I need, to, I need to know that, that that's for my sanctification. And I need to repent in that time of my self-sufficiency, my need to have my kingdom ultimate. And when that person's difficult, I need to repent of my own need and desire and demand to have things the way I want them right now. They're instruments of my sanctification and repentance every day. How is it that, why is sin so bad? Why would God be concerned about this? Now, ultimately, God is not threatened by our sin, right? Because he's sovereign. He's ruling. He's on the throne. Uh, when we sin, we're kind of like the guy who's just a beggar outside of the castle, uh, you know, just all like a bum. And, we're, and we're, when we're taking, we're taking God's stuff and we're kind of mocking it. Uh, we're, just, we're not really a threat to him. But to do so is absolutely inappropriate, and evil. Why is sin so sinful? Consider the wrong you do to God in that. Jesus was pierced for our sins, crushed for our sins. This is, for us to treat sin as no big deal is absolutely absurd. It is it's sinful and, and, and evil. Um, one, one way that we sin is in our practical atheism. We don't think about God some days. We don't think about how what we're doing is before him. A third way is we take sin lightly. You know, we don't understand that, that God destroys sin. He will destroy sin ultimately. The guilt, the presence, and the power 
are being destroyed. God is against sin. He is granting repentance to those whom he loves. Granting repentance from sin. To turn from sin. God hates sin. We're turning from it. The ways of darkness, we're turning from it. You know, so sin is terrible. When we, when we, when we see sin is terrible in God's cataclysmic destruction of the world in Noah's time and in Sodom and Gomorrah, but the most time when we see sin is terrible is that the sinless Savior, Jesus, takes on our sins and is destroyed. He is abandoned and forsaken, and he endures the wrath of God for the salvation of his people, that we might put on the armor of light and follow behind him. We're going to be killing that sin, or it's going to be killing us. It's evil. Now, we're connected to this Christ, and this Christ has told us to forsake the darkness because he's the light of the world. The dark deeds that are typical of this age are those things uh, that are listed in verse 12 and 13. Uh, 13, actually. It says, let's walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or in jealousy. And it says there at the end, it says, put on Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for your flesh to gratify its desires. Now, how many of those uh, deeds of darkness hit you this morning? Those deeds of darkness if you look at them, you recognize there's a difference between darkness and light, of course. Uh, a, a dark area, a dark alley is at midnight is much more foreboding than a, than a light area in midday. This light, this light and dark imagery is something that Jesus definitely picked up on with the day of the Lord. Midnight and dark alley is scary. And rebellion against God is scary. Living just according to your sinful desires, your fleshly desires, instinctually is a true recipe for disaster. It's a true scary place to be in. If you have no, you know, no qualms about whatever you want to do, and everyone should do exactly what you want to do, and you should get everything you want, and true freedom is getting exactly what you want to get all the time, you are in an animalistic, very scary place. It's a dark place, and you should be terrified. If you have no control over yourself, you should be terrified. If someone threatens you and you fly off the handle and shake that person, you should be terrified. That's the very things he's speaking of right here. That is quarreling, jealousy. If you have no self-control over lusting and sensuality and drunkenness, and you don't want any, <laughs> if you think that's the best way for you, that is a dangerous place to be. That is a dark place to be. That is not what you're made to do. You're made to have mastery and dominion over this earth and all the things that God has given. And so when you worship those things and when you make those things ultimate, whether it be sex or power, money, whether it be food and drink, those things are poor gods. They're poor God substitutes. And that is what we serve. When our, when our God is threatened, we lash out whether it's power, whether it's pleasure, whether it's, you know, all that we can do. As you consider that, be afraid of that. Be, be, be afraid of those things because they destroy things. They destroy you. They hurt you. They hurt everyone you love. But you know that the one who has power to change you is God only, not you. Repentance is not managing the sin, but it is God changing you. It's God rescuing you. 
Repentance begins with God, and you follow along. Uh, The way that God does this is through his word and spirit. And so what does the word do principally? Well, the word gives you the law. The law tells you you are a mess. Now, it tells you what sin is. It tells you what God requires. Do you know what the law says in the Bible? Do you know what it says? Do you know what the Ten Commandments say? Do you know what they mean? These are key questions you need to ask yourself if you want to know these things and you want to live these things. If you don't know these things, you have no idea what God loves. You don't know God if you don't know the law. And the law is going to crush your heart. The law is going to break your heart. It's going to make this heart of stone into a heart. It's, It's going to just crush it into many pieces of stone. That's what the law does. It tells you there's a curse on you because you haven't obeyed all of God's commands and you will be cursed and forevermore alienated from him. That's what the law tells you. You need to know that. But you also need to know the gospel. The Bible is full of the law and the gospel, the good news, that if you will turn to him, he will wash away every stain, every sin. He will make the scarlet sin like it's white as snow. If you will turn to him, if you will repent, if you believe in him, these are the things that are for you. It has nothing to do with what you've done. It's what Jesus has done. This is the gospel. It's for you. The law destroys you, and the gospel heals you. But those things need to be there. Liberation and freedom, according to your ways, is not the way. Holiness is the way. Happiness is not the way. Holiness is the way. You need a plan for holiness. You need to have a plan for that. You need to have a plan for holiness. So you can react to holiness. You can react to whatever's going on in your day. You can say, well... I can't plan everything. I've got to ask the question, is this glorifying God? And we should do that. We should ask, is what we're experiencing glorifying God today? Is it bringing him glory? But secondly, we need a plan, a proactive strategy. We need to, as we might think about a physical training goal or a get-out-of-debt goal, we need to have holiness on our radar. We need to have a plan for that, and we need to, to, to consider it. What do we need to do? We need the law, and we need the gospel, We need to put ourselves in fellowship with people who can tell us the law and the gospel and can lead us to Christ. Let me end with this. You are on a sailboat. You're not on a motorboat. You need the law of God and the Spirit to use it. You need it. You have to put yourself in the community of God with the law of God and and the gospel of God that you might be moved along in repentance. Let me give you this example. When Jesus was asked by the, by the Pharisees and tax collectors why he's eating with sinners, he tells them a little story. It's quick. He says in Luke 15, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one he's lost until he finds it? You leave the 99, you go and find the lost sheep. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And he comes home and he calls together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. As you consider that, what is the position of repentance? God grants it. The shepherd goes and finds that lost sheep, the sinner, and brings him home on his shoulder. The place of position is on the shoulders of the shepherd, the good shepherd. And what you are to do is to imitate Christ. You're to care about what he cares about, rejoice in what he rejoices in, and celebrate what he celebrates in. He rejoices in your holiness, in your rescue, in your salvation. Not in the shadows, not in the lost places. Those places you went to 
are to be rejected. You're to turn from those places and to, and to enjoy the ride. To say, yes, let's go that way, Jesus. Where are you taking me today, Jesus? He, you're on his shoulders. He's bringing you home. That is it. If you want to have your mind enlarged, if you want to know these things and put on the, the new things and take off the old things, you have to know Christ. You have to know him. And that's who he is. He's the Savior. He's the gracious Savior. There's no one like him. Uh, let's take a moment now and ask God to, put, to help us to put on our walking boots, to, to live in joy, to endure the shame, the cross, the sufferings that we must endure, the trials, because our plan is for holiness and not necessarily happiness right now, but for the power of sin to be diminished all of our days and to live as those who put on the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's put us on him.